And grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Bible in the pew back in front of you because you're going to want one. You're going to want one throughout the entire series in Romans because uh, you, you, you just need your Bible with you. You just need it with you when we come to, come to this kind of a, a study. You know, as I was... Um, I had a long uh, two weeks. I don't know about you, but uh, I, I didn't uh, uh, preach last Sunday because the ladies were on retreat. And we had uh, four guys step up and lead different seminars for the men, and they did a great job, along with uh, Joyce Bennett leading a seminar for the ladies that were, uh, that were still here. And, and so I had two weeks, two weeks, to prepare this message <clears throat> in Romans. And it's a good thing that I had two weeks, because this message in Romans, uh, particularly verses 15 and then primarily 16 and 17, are the theme, the indisputable theme verses of Romans. They are the most important verses in the book of Romans to help us unlock the rest of the book. And so I was grateful for ample and extra time to prepare. And I gotta say, I probably spent more time preparing for this message than I've done for a message in a very long time. Very long time. Having said that, as I was reflecting, even last night, on the preaching material that I have for us today, uh, one thing struck me again and again. I have been reading and rereading this passage over and over, perhaps more than any other text. I've been considering word studies. I've been considering phrases and analyzing patterns in the text. I've been trying to factor in all the historical data and the grammatical issues. And, and I've been trying to, to do all this so that I can understand Paul's words and explain them clearly. But Paul's words, difficult as they are in our text today, are given with one hope in mind. One hope. That they might help us appropriate the power of God. All of the study, all of the words, all of the phrases, all of the analysis that we might do in this text, and we're going to do a lot. In fact, this message is going to be in two parts. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to break this up into part one and part two. But all of that study and all of that focus is for one hope. And that is that we would appropriate, that we would make it our own the power of God. Paul says this in our text today in Romans chapter 1. He says quite clearly, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Paul writes the things that he does in the hope that we will know and experience the power of God as he does. And so yes, today... We will study a lot of words. Today we will study a lot of phrases. But we will not merely do this to understand mentally what Paul is saying. That's not our ultimate purpose. Our ultimate purpose and my ultimate hope is at the end of this study and ultimately of our next study, the completion of it, that we will have a clearer picture of how to appropriate the power of God that is contained in the message of Jesus Christ. The title of my message today is The Gospel in Romans, The Power of God Unto Life and Deliverance. The Gospel in Romans, The Power of God Unto Life and Deliverance. And we're going to be breaking this up into two parts, so we're really not going to cover verse 17 today, but we'll read it nevertheless. So let's go to the text, and I want to ask God for, for guidance here, so let's, let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we need Your help as we read Your truth. We don't pretend, Father, to have the corner on Your truth apart from You. Lord, we need Your Spirit to illumine our minds and our hearts and our eyes that we could see Your Word plainly and clearly. So, Father, help us to set aside preconceptions. Help us to set aside our past understanding of things and help us to approach Your Word honestly and humbly and, and, and with meekness utterly dependent on You to show us Your truth. 
Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said earlier, this passage indisputably contains the theme of Romans. And understanding this, of course, then is going to be of utmost importance. But today, we're not going to understand it in full. We're going to understand it in part. And so you may have questions at the end of today's message, and that's going to be intended. That's going to be intentional from me to you, that you should have additional questions after the end of today. Hopefully by next week we'll have answered most all of those questions. But I don't want to presume uh, that, that, this is, that this is just about me teaching you. That's just not what's happening. The Holy Spirit of God is teaching us. And what I say today, some of which is probably going to be, wow, I never, I never read Romans that way. What I say today, it's incumbent upon all of us as Christians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God to take this message home and to study the Scriptures ourselves and to consider it afresh from our perspective as the Spirit guides us. And so the Holy Spirit has much to teach us. This is not just... We're not just going to... Finish Romans and, and finalize the, the view of Romans just in these two sessions together. Let us rely on the Spirit and let us go home. Let this be a primer so that we would go home and study it more. To the text. Romans chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Paul says this, So as much as is in me, I am ready or eager to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 15 again. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now, if you remember our last study in Romans, you'll recall that that just prior to verse 15, uh, Paul had been speaking of the debt that he owed the Gentiles. Now, he didn't owe them money, even though the Gentiles had given Paul money for his Christian missionary and work. Not the Romans per se, but other Gentile churches had given him money that he could go on and do the work of, of Christian ministry. Instead, Paul owed them an unswerving commitment to preach the Gospel. He owed them an unswerving commitment to preach the Gospel. On the back wall, you see a a, a group of missionaries there, right? All those pictures. I don't know if you pay much attention to it, but we ought to, because these are people on the back wall whom we have made a physical investment in. We have, as a church, we donate up to almost 15% of our budget, every time you put a dollar in the plate, about 15 cents goes to those people right there. And we have made a financial investment in them, and what we're asking for in return is not money back. We're not asking for the gift back monetarily. What we're asking of them is that they would return to us a spiritual return. That they would give back spiritual fruit and would come to us at the end of, uh, on a missionary conference or in a testimony and say, look what has happened as a result of your gift. And that's exactly what Dennis said today. Dennis at Stony Brook. For many, many years, Coast has been partnering with them. We've partnered with this school. We've made it a priority to help them succeed. And now we're not asking for Stony Brook's money back. We're asking to hear, how are these kids growing in the Lord? And they are. Amen. So Paul is assuring the Roman Christians that he is prepared to pay his debt. Not money, but spiritual debt. He is prepared to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome. But of course, implicit in this statement is the hope that the Roman Christians will also partner with him in the work of the Lord by giving of their tithes and their offerings. And as we learned in our most recent study in Romans, you might recall in the last study, when Paul uses the word fruit... In chapter 1, verse 13. And when he uses the word fruit again, in chapter 15, verse 28, I contend that that is code word for financial gift. Financial gift. I think the correlation between chapter 1, verse 13 and chapter 15, verse 28 is too strong to think otherwise. Paul is asking Rome, partner with me. Give unto the work of the Lord 
and you will get a return. He is committed to preaching the gospel. Now, it might seem uh, odd to some, but our next question is of utmost importance. And Paul, So Paul says he's ready to preach the gospel. And my question is, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to preach the gospel? And you might be thinking, now come on, let's, let's focus particularly on that phrase, preach the gospel. And you might be thinking, come on, this is, uh, that's a Sunday school answer, isn't it? Isn't uh, preaching the gospel uh, telling people about salvation by faith in Jesus Christ? Right? Isn't that the gospel? Uh, evangelizing and preaching the gospel is telling people how to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's a common answer. Uh, today in Christendom and throughout all churches that, that, that we would answer in, in that way. In fact, I've, I put it up there in red just to kind of let us see that answer in, in, in focus. Okay, so let's assume it's correct. Let's assume Paul is saying, I am ready to tell people how to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Alright, let's assume that for a moment. Well, it's kind of... One peculiar thing about what we see here in Romans, in verse 15, is the word preach the gospel, that phrase, preach the gospel, that's one Greek verb. Euangelizo. One Greek verb. It's one word. And so when Paul says he's ready to euangelizo, he's saying, it's a verb, he's doing it. I'm ready to preach the gospel. One word. That verb, euangelizo, is used multiple times in the New Testament. But interestingly enough, I don't think it always means tell people how to be saved by faith in Christ. Let me show you an example. Uh, Paul writing to uh, Timothy, and this is what it says in 1 Thessalonians. It says this. Actually, he's giving a report on Timothy, who is a pastor, a pastor that Paul has appointed in Ephesus. So Paul has appointed Timothy to go to a city to be their pastor. And this is what he says in, in report of what Timothy has done. It says, Timothy has come to us from you, Thessalonians, and has brought us good news of your faith and love. Now, Timothy's actually about to go to Ephesus, I should say. He's come to Thessalonica and Paul's about to send him to Ephesus to be their pastor. And he's saying, Timothy has come to us, Paul and his companions, from you, Thessalonians, you Thessalonian Christians, and he has brought us good news of your faith and love. Well, you know the words brought good news right there? That is the Greek verb euangelizo. The same Greek verb that Paul uses in Romans 1.15. Same word. Exact same word. There's no difference. So, Paul is saying there that Timothy has come to us from you and has preached the gospel to us, even though the words aren't the same. Our English translation is change it up a bit. He's preached the gospel to us of your faith and love. Hmm. Well, let's insert our common answer for the gospel and see if that works here. Timothy has come to us from you and told us how to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ and of your faith and love. Does that make sense to you? No. Does it make sense to you? No. Alright, good. I want to be clear there. What I've done here, in case you're confused, is I've inserted the same meaning into this phrase, preach the gospel, just like we might do in Romans 1.15. And I'm doing so to demonstrate the absurdity of suggesting that the word euangelizo, or preach the gospel, always means tell others about how to be saved by faith in Christ. It just doesn't mean that. There's no way that Timothy, that Paul is saying, oh yeah, Timothy came back and he's evangelizing me. It's great. Paul's already saved. He's not suggesting that Timothy's returning and evangelizing him. No. What, what Paul is suggesting is that Timothy has come with good news. He's come with a great report. And that's what the Gospel means. It means good news. And it begs the question, good news about what? In fact, I want to go to this uh, next slide here. On your, uh, on your outline here, we're demonstrating this. The meaning of gospel cannot simply be reduced to the message of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, though it often implies that. No, gospel means good news and begs the question, good news about what? And I put a little, you know, little tie in your finger, right? Or a little, little 
graphic there. Why, why do I do that? Because I'm trying to say to you, every time you see the word gospel in the New Testament, or every time you see the word good news, which is the same word for gospel, or glad tidings, you should say to yourself, good news about what? What is the good news? What is the good news? Well, according to, to, uh, to Paul in that First Thessalonians passage, the good news was that the Thessalonians were growing in faith and love. Timothy preached that gospel to Paul. Paul, good news! The Thessalonians are growing. I'm preaching the gospel to you. The angel Gabriel preached the gospel. Remember when he said, I bring you glad tidings of good joy. Somebody's going to be born. Gabriel was preaching the gospel. He was announcing the good news of the birth of Christ. The apostles preached good news. They often preached that Jesus was the Messiah. An angel in Revelation preached good news. Of course, in Revelation 14.6, that good news, that gospel that he preached, was that judgment was coming. Good news. The final day of judgment has come. Gospel. Alright. We're sitting in different seats, right? We're getting a new perspective here. When you see the word gospel, ask yourself, good news about what? Sometimes it means that we should believe in Christ for everlasting life. Other times it means, hey, just listen to this report of good news in the church. We've got to ask ourselves, good news about what? All right, moving on. So now we go back to verse 15. Paul says, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Okay? Okay, Paul. Good news about what? to the Roman Christians. What are you going to tell them? What is it, Paul, that you are going to proclaim to them that is good news? Well, what is the good news Paul is hoping to bring to a group of Roman Christians whom he has already described in these terms? And I'll bring them up real quickly. We looked at this a couple weeks back. But notice that these are the phrases Paul uses of the audience he's going to. He's saying, Rome, Roman Christians, I'm coming to you. You, who are called of Jesus Christ. You, who are beloved of God. You, who are called to be saints. You, who have a faith that is spoken of throughout the whole world. I'm coming to you, who are able to encourage me, Paul, by our mutual faith together. Are we really to suppose, then, in verse 15, that when Paul says he's going to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome, you Christians in Rome, that what he means to say is, I'm looking forward to telling you how to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Surely that can't be what Paul means based on what he's already said about them. He knows that they believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah. Paul knows this. He said, wow, you guys have amazing faith. I've heard about it around the world. You've been called. You are beloved of God. You have the capacity to encourage me. And so when Paul says, I'm going to come to you and preach the Gospel, he's not saying, and by the way, I'm going to come and evangelize all of you. It can't be what he's saying. Or at least it can't be just that. Douglas Moo. We looked at this quote before. I want to bring it up again because it's, this is coming from one of the preeminent New Testament scholars in our day. He said, are we really, he, he said this, that Paul includes the Roman Christians, among those to whom he wants to preach the Gospel, is at first sight strange. That's strange. Why would he say that? Moo goes on to make this comment. He says, In this case, preach the Gospel will refer to the ongoing work of teaching and discipleship that builds on initial evangelization. So Moo is making a judgment statement here. I see you guys laughing. You guys want to talk about the cow Moo here? I see some people smirking about this guy's name here. Right? <laughs> Moo is making the suggestion that in this case, in this particular instance in Romans 1.15, preach the gospel cannot just mean initial evangelization. It can't just mean that. Instead, it's going to refer to ongoing work of teaching and discipleship that builds upon that. And I think he's on the right track. I think he's absolutely on the right track. This statement begins to move us in a better direction. A much better direction with respect to what the Gospel means in Romans. It doesn't answer all our questions about the Gospel that Paul is about to preach in Rome. But it does help us recognize that Paul's Gospel contains 
so much more than just the message of how to be saved. It helps us realize that Paul intends to tell the Roman Christians additional good news that will ground them more solidly in the faith they already profess. So let's define the Gospel further as Paul elaborates upon the good news he's about to preach. And he says in Romans 1.15 that he is eager to preach his good news. Why is he eager? He goes on in verse 16 to say this. He says, So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome also, for I am not ashamed, not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Notice Paul's eagerness to preach is directly in proportion to his pride in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, in the good news about Christ. Now, I want you to ask yourself, what do you talk about on a regular basis? What do you talk about on a regular basis? You know, some people, a lot of parents, you talk to parents and they talk about their kids, right? Casey and I, were constantly talking about Bennett and Mallory this, Bennett and Mallory that. We're always talking about our kids. Why? We're proud of them. Uh, businessmen and women talk about their job if they're proud of it. Um, you know, we, we brag about our spouse. We brag about uh, maybe, uh, maybe a car that we love. Oh man, I just love this car. I've been, you know, I've been, uh, you, 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 whatever you're proud of, you talk about, right? Whatever you're proud of, you talk about. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you talk about the good news of Christ? Do you ever share it with unbelievers? Do you ever talk about your faith with Christian friends? In, your, in, in Christian conversations, do you ever bring up your spirituality? Do you bring it up with your family? If not, it could be because you're ashamed of it. Maybe you're ashamed of your own Christian maturity and, and rather than, than rectify your life, you just kind of put it to the sidelines. Or maybe you're ashamed of Christianity itself. Maybe you have very sophisticated and secular friends and neighbors who would just incessantly mock you if they found out you believed in, uh, in a book like this. Do you talk about Christ? And if you don't, do you talk about your faith? And if you don't, is it because you're ashamed of it? Or ashamed of your own maturity in it? Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory. Now, to be clear here, and I want to be very clear, Jesus is not suggesting that the shameful one will be denied entrance into the kingdom of God. It's not what he's saying. As a father, um, as, as a father my son can do a litany of things that that I am ashamed of him for. He could do it until he's 18 years old. He could do it throughout his entire life. And I might be, maybe my son will go on and, and I'll just look at his life and I'll go, wow, the majority of his life I'm ashamed of and yet I will never deny that he's my son. Never once. And the same is true of God. We can go astray, we can go, we can shame him and shame his name and, 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 and not talk about him, not talk about him to others, that never discounts the fact that you're his son or daughter by faith in Christ. No, instead, Jesus, Jesus is suggesting that on the final day, you'll, you'll, just, you'll, have nothing, you'll have nothing to say to Christ. When he looks upon you and says, what did you do for me? You'll be like, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I did. Shame is a powerful emotion. I've been shamed before. Uh, I've been shamed a few times before, and I'll tell you, it's probably one of the worst emotions a human can feel. Do you want to be shamed at the judgment seat of Christ? Or do you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? It is not too late to change. God's mercies are new every morning. And if you are ashamed, or you don't talk about your faith, or you don't talk about Christ, turn it around. Find pride in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Find pride in this message. Study it. Learn. Grow. Become able to defend it so that Christ will look upon you on the last day and say, well done. Paul is proud of the Gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God 
to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He says the gospel itself, the good news about Christ itself, is power. Leon Morris, a great New Testament commentator, says this about this phrase. He says, The gospel is not advice to people suggesting that they lift themselves up. It is power. It lifts them up. When the gospel is preached, this is not simply so many words being uttered. The power of God is at work. Something is happening when the message, the good news, is proclaimed about Jesus Christ. Something happens. Something powerful happens. It happens in the human heart. God's power is at work. The Gospel itself is power. The message of Christ is power. And it expresses itself in power. Paul is eager to preach the Gospel. Why? Because he's proud of it. Why is he proud of it? Because it is powerful. He has seen it to powerfully overcome all things in this earth. It is the power of God... Continuing on, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, we've already come to the word gospel, right? And we've asked ourselves, we put that, that thing on our finger and we've asked ourselves, okay, when I come across the word gospel, I need to ask myself, good news about what? Well, the same is true of this word salvation. The same is true of this word salvation. And a good question to ask of this word salvation, and it's a good, you know, again, we're sitting in new seats here, we're getting a new perspective. A good thing to ask about this question, salvation, is salvation to what? Or salvation from what? Okay, salvation to, unto what? Or salvation from what? You say, well, what are you, what are you talking about? What is that? What does that even mean? Well, friends, as we all know, there is a knee-jerk reaction to this term salvation. A knee-jerk reaction. Christians, by and large, and yes, the common person in the street, what does it mean to be saved? They're going to say, well, it means to go to heaven, right? It means to go to heaven. Or it means to be delivered from hell. What does it mean to be saved? It means to go to heaven or to be delivered from hell. Interestingly enough, uh, Joseph Dillo has kind of an a different conclusion there. He, he surveyed the entire Old Testament, and this is what he said. In 812 usages of the various Hebrew words in the Old Testament, translated to save or salvation in the Old Testament, only 58 refer to eternal salvation. 7.1%. Yasha would be the most common word in the Old Testament for salvation. And Jody Dillo did an intricate study... 15, 20 years ago, uh, he said, okay, let's look, at, let's look at every instance of salvation in the Old Testament. And let's figure out, does, what does it mean? Salvation from what? He found that only 7% of the time did it mean salvation from hell. That's astounding. That's an astounding claim. And any of you with a Bible can look at, look, go look yourself. Do a word study on the word save or salvation in the Old Testament. You do the study yourself. He says it's 7%. Then he went to the New Testament. This will kind of boggle your mind a little bit too. Then he went to the New Testament and he found this. He said of the 152 Greek words for save and salvation in the New Testament, only 58 refer to salvation from hell. 38.2%. So, okay, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, over 90% of the time when you come across the word salvation, should you think... Salvation from hell. And almost, almost two-thirds of the time when you come to the New Testament and you see the word save or salvation, almost two-thirds of the time you should think to yourself, well, it's probably not salvation from hell here. Because only 38.2% of the time is it. Folks, these two quotes are largely neglected among Christians. These, this, this, this analysis, this consideration of the Scriptures, as they are, not as I thought they were, as they are, not as I learned it as a kid, as they are. The preconceptions, friends, set them aside. 
I'm saying to you, set aside the preconceptions. Set aside what you thought to be true of this Word. Set aside everything and just go to the Bible again. Go to it for the first time. Do a word study on saved. Do a word study on salvation. And ask yourself the question, saved to what? Or saved from what? Dillo says, these are the stats. There might be some variation, I'm sure, between different, different people and different theologians, but he says this is what he's found. I think that's pretty significant. Now, there are other, and just to kind of bring it out in its fullness, there are other meanings for the term saved. Soteria in Greek, or, or sozo. And the, the various meanings are these. Take a look. Uh, we've kind of listed them in rapid-fire order here. We've got rescue, deliver, defend, preserve, heal, make whole, give victory, prosper, even avenge. And then you've got to ask the question, is it physical or spiritual? And then you've got to ask the question, is it temporal or eternal? So when you come across this word, you just can't insert the words, oh, that means saved save from hell. You can't insert those words automatically without considering all the interpretive options which New Testament scholars consider as they go through this concept of salvation. Salvation to what? Salvation from what? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? Is it temporal? Is it eternal? Anyone with access to a Bible can do this study. And nearly two-thirds of the time, Dillo says, it does not mean salvation from hell. Wow. Well, let's, 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 see, if, let's see if there's any examples of him being right there. Let's, let's, let's look in the book of Romans. We're still trying to figure out what does Paul mean by salvation in Romans 1. Let's turn to a passage in Romans 10. All right, Turn to Romans 10, and we're going to look at verses 13 to 15 right now. Romans 10, 13 to 15. And we're going to take a look at one passage on salvation. And again, my, my, let me say this again. This is a primer. I can't possibly substantiate all the evidence for this. I'm giving you a primer for going home on your own and considering this yourself. So Romans 10, we're going to look at the word uh, saved there in Romans 10. The verbal form of salvation that we find in, in uh, Romans 1. And in Romans 10, beginning in verse 13, it says this. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, we've heard that before. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? This is kind of a peculiar pattern Paul is using here. He's kind of going down the list, right? He's going down the line and he's kind of he's having sequential order here. Sequential order. We're going down the order and we're asking ourselves, what's the pattern here? What's, what's the sequence? Let's take a look and determine what is the sequence that helps us understand what salvation is all about according to Romans 10, verse 13. And uh, let's go ahead and bring up that, the first uh, thing from the bottom there. Okay, notice we're going to go we're going to go bottom up. All right? Go bottom up with me for a minute. All right? In order to preach the gospel, Paul says, you must be sent. Now look look at verse 15. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Okay? So I'm going in reverse order here. You see that? I'm going in reverse order unless or in order to preach the gospel you must be sent. Okay, let's continue. In order to hear the gospel you need a preacher. Again, we're going in reverse order where it says, how shall they hear without a preacher? Alright? So far, so good. Keep going. In order to believe the gospel, you need to hear it. Notice verse 14b. And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? So you've got to hear it before you can believe it. Let's go to the next one. In order to call on the Lord, you need to believe Him. Verse 14a, And how shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Hmm, that's peculiar. And then the last one. In order to be saved, you need to call on the Lord, according to verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now look at that carefully for a minute. Pay very close attention to the last two items you should see something popping out there that's, that kind of will rock a lot of our worlds because of what we thought about this passage is, might, might not be true. Let me ask you this. 
according to John 3.16. How do you become a Christian? How do you become a Christian? Believe in Jesus, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Tell me when that is true according to the sequence behind me. When did the person believe? What number? All right. Three, well, it's in three and four, I guess, right? It's in both of them, right? In order to believe the gospel, number three, you need to hear it. Okay? So, Paul is suggesting there that in order to believe in the gospel, to, uh, John 3.16, in order to receive eternal life, you've got to believe it. But then he says, so that's when the person's justified, we might say. But then he says in line four, in order to call on the Lord, you need to believe Him. And then he says, in order to be saved, you need to call on the Lord. Wait a minute. Do you see the, the, the discrepancy here? Do you see what's going on? When is the person justified? They're justified when they believe in Christ. How are they saved? Paul says they're saved when they call on the name of the Lord. But they can't call on the name of the Lord unless they've what? Believed. In order to call on the name of the Lord, number four, you need to believe Him. Some of you, how many of you recognize what's going on here? Raise your hand if you're following what's going on here. Alright, some of you are missing it and some of you aren't. I'm trying, I'm trying to help us with this. I'm suggesting... Uh, that according to Romans 10, there are two things going on here. On the one hand, a person is being justified when they believe in Christ. They hear it from the preacher and they're justified. And that gives them the ability, the ability to then call on the name of the Lord. Can an unbeliever call on the name of the Lord according to item 4? Let me ask you again. Can an unbeliever call on the name of the Lord according to item 4? No. But then Paul says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Why would Paul say that if they can't do it? Ah, but herein lies the issue. Salvation for Paul is not justification. Salvation for Paul in Romans 10.13 is not salvation from hell. It isn't. It can't be. There's no way to read it any other way. Because an unbeliever can't call on the name of the Lord. It's not possible. In order to call on the Lord, item four, you need to believe Him. Okay, let's bring it all together. Let's bring it all together. We know from a plethora of other Scriptures that our eternal salvation, our justification, is based on our faith or our belief in Christ. And so on the spectrum above me, the unbeliever passed from death to life when he believed the message. He passed from death to life when he believed the message. But his salvation, as it were, isn't meant to stop there. No, the believer in Christ is encouraged to now call upon the name of the Lord so that he can be saved. Not eternally saved, for he's already received that when he believed. No, the Christian is asked to call on the name of the Lord to protect and preserve Him and to give Him victory as He walks with God in this life, which is precisely what's going on in Joel chapter 2, the passage which Paul is quoting. He who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Israel's crying out, not for salvation from hell. They're crying out to be saved, protected, preserved, Help us win in this life. Help us defeat our enemies. Preserve us. And I am suggesting that what Paul is doing here in Romans 10 with the word salvation is precisely what he does throughout the entirety of the book with that same word. He is drawing a distinction between a believer's past justification and the present outworking of salvation, also known as sanctification. 
Paul is drawing a distinction. I want to bring up that the next slide. Just, just this is kind of tidbits here. This isn't, this isn't, you know, this isn't exhaustive. But there's a dividing line here between what he will call justification or justify and salvation or save. There is a dividing line between these two terms in the book of Romans. I am suggesting. On the left side, justification is accomplished in the past. It's declared. It's when you're declared righteous before God. It's, it's when you are given eternal life. And it comes by faith when you believe justified. But salvation, according to Paul, is the present outworking of your salvation. The present, the present uh, life of uh, living with God. It's also known as sanctification. Calling on the name of the Lord is a characteristic of it. Deliverance from sin and from wrath is a characteristic of it. God's power for spirit-filled living is a characteristic of it. He's drawing a distinction between being eternally saved and being delivered victoriously in the here and now. And he is saying that, that while it is a great thing to believe and to be justified, greater still is the one who goes on to call upon the name of the Lord for protection, deliverance, and victory. Okay. I told you this was part one. Um, when, I, when I was... Uh, when Casey and I were on our honeymoon, we, uh, we went to uh, Hawaii, saved up our pennies, and we went to Maui. And on, on Front Street in Lahaina in Maui, we came across these street artists. You've seen them before, right? There's these, there are these guys and the gals who are just, you know, they, they, they're having somebody sit right there and they're drawing them and, and getting them all ready and, and, you know, putting these awesome, you know, portraits together, uh, uh, portraits of the people that want to be drawn on the streets in, in Hawaii. And it always occurs to me, go ahead and bring up the slide here, it always occurs to me when they first start out, you can't, you just, you can't quite see it all, right? You're looking at it and you're going, well, okay, what? All right, well, how's it all going to come together? You know, you, you see it in stages and you might look at it for a while and you might think, I don't know if that looks like them. Well, Casey got, uh, she was drawn by one of these guys on the streets and he started drawing her and, uh, and I was looking, I was over his shoulder and kind of looking at my wife and looking at him and I was like, okay, I don't quite see it yet. And he's drawn it and drawn it and drawn it and finally, it was, it was amazing because he finally came to the finished product and I looked upon it and I said, yeah, that's absolutely not right. He got it totally wrong, Okay. It looked nothing like my wife. And so the whole time I'm going, maybe that doesn't look right, but I'm sure it'll pan out, right? And then at the end it was like, who is that again? <laughs> and we have it hanging, you know, in our closet. So you guys, when you come over, I'll, I'll show it to you. And you'll be like, who is that, Neil? Did you, was that another girlfriend or something like that in the past? What's my point? We are halfway through the sketch. Halfway through. We're not done with the theme verse of Romans. We have more to do, and there's more to be said, and more to clarify. But thus far, if, if, I'm a, if I was to give a halfway statement, it would be this. Paul is proud of the good news of God's power through Christ to save or deliver believers from sin and wrath, from sin and wrath, and unto victorious, spirit-filled living in the here and now. That's my working thesis. That's my working thesis in Romans. I'm going to modify that a little bit as we finish up next week because there's going to be more to add to it. And quite frankly, as we go through the book of Romans, I'm, I, I have no problems modifying it further. I want to be taught by Romans. I don't want to impose upon it my own hypothesis. May the Spirit of God teach us in this book. I hope that what I've presented today, while a lot of it new to some of you and odd and strange, thinking, well, I never thought of it that way. Go home, consider it yourself, recognize we're only halfway through this sketch, and hopefully we can get a clearer picture in our next study in Romans. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for uh, this morning. Lord, uh, I'm reminded that as we're studying words and phrases um, you tell us clearly that ultimately you want us to know your power in the message of Christ. My hope is, Lord, that as we put finishing touches 
on these precious verses. That in our next study, we will begin to see how you want us to use that power. So Father, I pray my prayer is that this would not be just an intellectual exercise for me or for all of any of us. Lord, show us, remind us, this is not about our minds, this is about our hearts and our lives. Help us to appropriate your power. That's what we wish to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul, uh, when the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, he was concerned that uh, he was concerned that they were uh, following men and not God. He was concerned that they were following the teachings of a man, him, Apollos, someone else, and he was uh, he was con- he was concerned that they would lose sight of the message. And listen just to the clever words. This is what he said. He said, I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words, of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Those are, those are powerful words. Uh, spoken of from a man who certainly had clever words to say. He certainly could, could, uh, could teach and speak and, 
And he, he, Paul was focused on words a lot and on phrases, on how to explain the truth of God to people. But in the end, he said, I, wanted to, I want to know nothing more, and I want all of us to know nothing more than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Right now, we partake of the Lord's Supper. And this is a vivid reminder that in as much as we look at words and phrases in the end, we need to be looking at the person of Christ. Period. And as we partake of this supper, a supper for for Christians, you who have believed in Jesus Christ, um, we are partaking of an ordinance that remembers Christ crucified, risen and coming again. So let us now in these few moments as we pass the elements, the, the bread and the, and the cup, let us just utterly focus on Him for that is what Paul would have us do and that is what the Lord would have us do. So spend some time in private prayer with the Lord at this time. Let's pray. Father, we just want to look at You right now. So speak to us. Help us to have good relationship with You. Help us to remember what You did for us in Christ on the cross. You've secured our salvation. You've given us power to live. Lord, we want to honor your Son at this time. In Jesus' name, amen.
We determine to know nothing else but Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our salvation. Let's partake together. Father, we honor You for Your Son, for Your great sacrifice, for giving us life and preservation and deliverance and victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Keep in our hearts, Father, a desire to know Him and to know nothing else but Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time, uh, as we conclude our service, we always like to take up a benevolent offering on our Lord's Supper Sundays. The tithes and offerings that you give in this, in this plate go particularly to address uh, physical needs, uh, food and rent and those kinds of things. And so rest assured that as all that you give are going to be going to those in physical need. Thank you. Uh, to close the service today, we're going to sing the song, When I Look Into Your Holiness. It's uh, page 649 in your hymnal. Uh, might be a little bit new to some of you. It's a little bit new to me too. Uh, but if you'd stand with us and sing, I'd really appreciate that. Number 649. And we'll sing it through one time. When I look into your holiness, when I gaze into your loveliness, when all things that surround become shadows in the light of you. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed today. Hope, hope you, in sitting in a new seat, I hope you found an, a good new perspective here this morning. Go home, take your Bibles with you, and uh, let's, let's study this book together a little bit more that we might know God's truth and appropriate His power. Finally, I want to rem- remind you, if you come here tomorrow at 10 a.m. and walk in this room, you will be sorely... Did I say... Yeah, next Sunday. What did I say? Well, if you come tomorrow, you will also be sorely surprised.
because I won't be here and neither will anyone else. If you come here next Sunday at 10 a.m. and walk through these doors, you will find no one here. And it's because we are going out. We are going into our community. We have actually a couple teams here, but we are going out into the community to show the love of Christ in different places in Orange County and up in Camp Allendale. I urge you to sign up today. We, we were opening up sign for one last week. If you would like to sign up, Corey in the back is your guy to talk to. He will be there in the foyer. And uh, please sign up because we would like you to worship on Sunday by serving the Lord. And so join us in this Faith in Action effort. And we will meet again here in two weeks and have a, a great report on that and continue our study in the book of Romans. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Father, thank You for who You are and all You've given us in Christ. Lord, we are justified by faith in Jesus and we have been given eternal life and we're grateful. But now, Lord, we want to be saved. We want to go on to a life of victory and deliverance, of sanctification, of striving with You. And so, Lord, we call upon Your name that You might save us to the fullest sense. Lord, help us to grow in Your truth to appropriate Your power. In Jesus' name, Amen.